Good afternoon and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Your panel this afternoon to my right is Judge Toby Hampson. To my left is Judge Jeff Carpenter. My name is John Tyson. Uh, we have one case on the docket for argument this afternoon, uh, Universal Life Insurance versus Lindbergh. I'd like to introduce our court staff, Mr. Eddie Saunders, who is from the clerk's office, and Mr. Richard Milliard, who is the court's marshal. We'd also like to welcome interns and externs and visitors who are with us today. Are there any preliminary matters to come before the court? Okay, then we'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. Matt Learberg for the appellant, Greg E. Lindbergh. I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal, please. Three minutes, okay. Judgment creditors have a number of statutory tools at their disposal. They can execute on a judgment under Article 28 of Chapter 1, and if that fails to provide complete relief, they can institute supplemental proceedings under Article 31. Each of these tools, though, comes with procedural protections for the debtor and certain limits on the jurisdiction of the trial court as it's applying the statutes. In particular, limits on the jurisdiction to reach property that's beyond the borders of North Carolina. In this case, ULICO encouraged the trial court to ignore these protections and limits. The resulting injunction and charging order reflect ULICO's overreach going beyond the statutes in several respects. So that's kind of a preliminary question for me, is trying to, trying to put this in its, in its proper context. And what, what is this order exactly? Is it a preliminary injunction? Is it a charging order? Is it uh, an equitable injunction? Is, I mean, I mean how, what's the proper lens for us to, to view this order in, in your view? Well, Judge Hampson, that, that's exactly the problem, is that neither of these orders fits well within any of the statutory buckets that are available to a judgment creditor. So there's two on appeal. Let's start with the injunction order. It's not really a preliminary injunction. It's not really a permanent injunction. Um, I think that uh, the trial court called well, it. If, if it is preliminary, is this is this interlocutory? I mean, do you have a right of appeal from an interlocutory order? I guess. Yes. So if we're going to start with the jurisdictional question, I mean, whether these are interlocutory or some other word is a little bit of a semantic question since we're in a post-judgment world. But there are a number of reasons why these orders are immediately appealable. Um, the first is the classic substantial rights test. I mean, these orders, and in particular the injunction order, it prevents Mr. Lindbergh from uh, earning a living at all. Uh, on Precision Walls versus Servi, uh, that's a 2002 case from this court, yes, that involved a preliminary injunction, but many of the same reasoning in that case apply here. There, um, the appellant was unable to work at all because of a non-compete. Now, unable to work within a particular space that the non-compete covered. Of course, Colin could have gone off and gotten a different job. But this court said, no, that is a substantial right. The right to earn a living and practice his livelihood that would be adversely affected if the injunction escapes immediate appellate review. That's exactly the situation here. None of Mr. Lindbergh's companies or partnerships that he's a member of are able to pay him anything more than $5,000 without court approval. He is unable to draw any of those funds from his companies. Uh, the order goes so far as to say that Mr. Lindbergh can't even pay his attorneys. And it covers the, <laughs> the loophole, which is his companies can't pay the attorneys directly, even if they have a contractual obligation to do so. 
So by all means, this, if any order, any injunction order affects a substantial rate, this one does. And one, another way to look at it is, ULICO's position that these are not appealable is untenable when you think about it. For one, there's not going to be another judgment, right? This is a case where there was a final judgment entered in federal court. It was domesticated into uh, Durham County in North Carolina. There will never be another judgment because there already is a judgment. So waiting for that final judgment, while that makes a lot of sense for many interlocutory orders, that kind of logic doesn't really work here. Nor is this like is that, the lead- Is that order on appeal? The federal order? Is it yes, been? it is. In the so Fourth Circuit- It's not final then either. It, right. I mean, it's, it is not final in the sense that that case is over. That's correct. So, it is on appeal. so there's further actions in that order that can occur as well. It's possible, right. I mean, if that appeal, it's, I believe it's been calendared for oral argument in the Fourth Circuit, and so it could be vacated. That's true. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm sure that's probably what you're asking the court to do. Yes. Yes. So uh, going back to Judge Hampson's question then, um, the burden on you is to show the court's jurisdiction. And um, if, if this is interlocutory, the only basis we would have would be a Rule 54B certification that we don't have or for you to demonstrate the substantial right. And if you have a right to challenge the order and you are challenging that in a different jurisdiction, why don't we just wait? So uh, a couple of things on that, Your Honor. One is, you're right, 54B doesn't really apply here. Substantial rights isn't the only other pathway. Um, the statutes also provide for an order that discontinues the action or that effectively is unreviewable. Those are, uh, as well as orders that affect personal jurisdiction, such as this, where we're dealing with this, something like a personal jurisdiction in the in-rem or quasi-in-rem context. The, the main problem with, uh, with Ulico's view is that there is never going to be another time when these could be appealed, right? So in a typical interlocutory order, there's those two windows. There's the 30 days after it's entered, in the 30 days after a final judgment. But that logic doesn't apply here. There's never, there may never be another order in the trial court at all in this case. This may be it. So it's kind of a now or never situation. And in terms of fragmentary appeals, we move to consolidate these appeals. You would go opposed. Was there, was there a motion to stay the order pending appeal? Uh, the or, there's an entire stay proceeding that is going on in federal court. And the parties, I believe, agree that if there's a stay in federal court, that it percolates into uh, state court where the judgment has been domesticated. And those efforts have been ongoing for a year now. Right. So there is a stay. Well, our position is that there's an automatic stay that we've argued before the federal court. The federal court has yet to agree with that position. They are arguing the current posture is that a magistrate judge has said that they're that we would need to post certain collateral for a supersedious bond in order to stay execution. Okay, and you're challenging that? Right. That's going up to the district court next. But meanwhile, Judge Ophelud here has, has frozen all these assets, right, and put, put in and, and joined. Well, that's the problem is, is yes, if, if this were like the classic status quo and nothing were happening below, then it might be a different story. The problem is, under the injunction, Mr. Lindbergh is suffering from the inability to earn a living every single day. He can't wait. And under the charging order, all of these LLCs have this order that says something that I, I frankly, and I don't think they understand, which is that 
they need to freeze Mr. Lindbergh's economic interests in the LLC. And we know from an earlier case that we had this, that we argued before Judge Oflu, that, um, which was called BP Energy, that that kind of directive has just led to endless confusion. And we argued that before Judge Oflu in this case as well. So every day there's an ongoing injury to Mr. Lindbergh. That's why we brought this up on appeal now. There are multiple statutory vehicles, there's substantial rights, uh, effectively discontinues the action under 277A, effectively determines the action and prevents a judgment from which an appeal might be taken. That's also in the statute. But let me fast forward, and that is to the uh, petition for writ of certiorari. Uh, as Judge Hampson notes in the Malone and McGroom case, the proper procedure when there's questions about appellate jurisdiction, but there's merit to the appeal, is to file a conditional petition for writ of certiorari. We did that here, and we pointed out that if this court has any doubts about its jurisdiction, it can certainly grant that petition and then move on to the merits. And as Judge Hampson notes in the, the Malone case, if the merits are compelling enough, that's a reason to grant the petition for cert and move ahead. So in some sense, uh, you know, we could do this backwards and talk about the merits, and if the court finds there to be egregious errors, then that warrants granting the petition if there's any uncertainty on the jurisdiction question. So let me return to Judge Hampson's first question, which is how to think about this injunction order. There is a statute that gives certain powers to the judge, and it's under the supplemental proceedings statutes. It's 1-358. It allows the, the trial court to, um, to enter certain kinds of injunctions that affect the debtor. But there's no, there's no access to that until execution has been tried and failed. And for 150 years, and both parties cite cases uh, on these questions, uh, the courts have wrestled with what exactly can a, uh, a judgment creditor do while the execution is still outstanding. Malone, for example, is a case that says, um, decided last year, says you can't move on to supplemental proceedings at all. The statute says, First, you have to issue a writ of execution. The sheriff has to bring it back unsatisfied, and then you can move on to Article 31 supplemental proceedings. And that's correct. That is how the statutes are set up. The word supplemental is there for a reason. Those are supplemental, and you have access to them if you're not able to find first personal property and then real property within the jurisdiction to satisfy the judgment. Here, the writ of execution was issued, but it wasn't returned right away. Um, while, before the sheriff had a chance to go look for property, which exists in Durham County, um, Ulico's counsel just asked for it to be returned unsatisfied. And you can see it in the record, uh, and in our brief, the, the uh, officer or clerk noted, uh, counsel asked for us to return this unsatisfied. And it just brought it back uh, pro forma. That's not sufficient. Under Massey versus Cates, 1968 case from this court, Execution has to be attempted. It has to be attempted. And that also helps explain one of the memoranda of additional authority cases that Ulico submitted uh, a few days ago. That's the Westminster case uh, from our Supreme Court in 1891. That's a case where the court did allow um, one of the supplemental proceeding statutes to be invoked, 1-353, at a time when the sheriff still had the writ of execution outstanding. But again, at least there, the sheriff had attempted to execute. And what the court noted is, you know, the sheriff's already tried, can't find the property. True, the sheriff hasn't actually brought the piece of paper back, but 
for all intents and purposes, the execution has been attempted and failed. But that's not what happened here. What happened here in reality is the sheriff never tried to execute. And for that reason, it's a jurisdictional problem. The cases say that is a jurisdictional failure. And the trial court can't move on to supplemental proceedings, can't access those statutes at all. Ulico cites a 2022 case, Radiance Capital, that suggests that uh, the opposite. It suggests that maybe you can access certain of the supplemental proceeding statutes even while the sheriff is still uh, out there trying to execute. But I want to explain that that's a case that involves something called an order in aid of execution, which is not a real thing as far as I can tell. It's not, those words don't appear in the statute anywhere. Um, parties cite a variety of things when they ask for those orders. My understanding is they're somewhat common in this kind of, uh, in the kind of collection space. I think those orders are probably best conceived of as part of what a trial court can do in the execution, Article 28, to help or aid that execution to proceed. It's more that than it is injunctive relief under supplemental proceedings. And so Radiance is kind of not relevant in that sense. And I think the court was looking at the wrong statute uh, when the court identified 1-358 as the font of power for that injunction. But what's, what's kind of interesting in this case, though, is that's not the authority relied on by the trial court here, correct? Like here, the, the trial court cites to, to Rule 65 and its, and its equitable uh, authority, equitable powers uh, to bring an injunction. Why doesn't that work? Well, Rule 65 definitely doesn't work. Um, How? It, it can't apply to post-judgment proceedings. I mean, Rule 65 covers TROs and preliminary injunctions. <laughs> Those are interlocutory matters, and by definition, those exist during the pendency of a case until final judgment, right? To kind of contrast that with, say, a permanent injunction, which is the counterpart that happens after a final judgment if you want it to stand in place forever. Um, because we're in a post-judgment world, there's nothing preliminary about any injunction that could be entered. Again, when would it end? That's the question. When would it end? It would end when there's a final judgment, but alas, there never will be another final judgment. So there's just some tension that Rule 65 doesn't really apply. Uh, well, I guess here. it kind of begs the question of whether the, the you know, the sort of the old, the old process of um, registering a foreign judgment, does that, does that constitute instituting a new action in, in North Carolina, or is, that, or is it merely sort of more of an administrative type process? Well, that, that, is that goes to the heart of a lot of this, Judge, um, and several of the other arguments that the parties have made in the briefs. This is not just a normal case, right? This is not the beginning of some other action. There's no complaint. There's no summons. There's no service of a summons. There's no process, right? This is you register a foreign judgment, and then you skip ahead directly to the step where you go to the execution statutes in Article 28. And that's why this jurisdictional question about what, what exactly is this action is actually very important. This is probably the best fit is quasi in rem. And what does that mean? It means that the court is trying to adjudicate who has what rights to property that is located in the jurisdiction. And so the, the in rem is the property piece, right? And the quasi is, yes, it has to do with natural persons and corporations, but only in the sense that what is their interest in that property? It all comes back to that property that's within the jurisdiction. That's what these kinds of actions are all about. And as the trial court reaches beyond the borders to say uh, that LLC is incorporated in other states or stock that is held in some other state, that it has jurisdiction to reach those, that is completely incongruous with how this is supposed to work. It's 
quasi in rem because it's focused on something that is within the jurisdiction and power of the trial court, which it is not here. You know, this would be, it, if this is the kind of thing where just having Mr. Lindbergh named in the caption means the trial court can do anything, then, I mean, think about what that would mean. That would mean the, uh, Ulico could go to the middle district, which issued the original judgment, and say, give us an order that Mr. Lindbergh gathers all of his property, wherever it may be, anywhere in the country, drives to Greensboro, and brings it to the court, right? That never happens. There's a reason that never happens. And the reason is that when you're in the execution world, you can't just command the defendant to bring everything there. You have to follow the process, the procedural protections, the exemptions. That's why there's a Uniform Enforcement of Foreign Judgments Act, right? Th that act is in place in jurisdictions across the country to enable judgment creditors to go where the property is, execute on the property, uh, have the sheriff go out and gather real property or personal property in those jurisdictions. Durham County simply doesn't have the ability to reach beyond into any state or any place in the world. It doesn't. That's the way these statutes are set up. The other major issue here is, let's suppose that the court disagrees with us and that some sort of injunction under 1-358 was appropriate. The problem here is that how far should that injunction reach? Well, again, it shouldn't reach beyond property that's in Durham or in North Carolina. It also shouldn't reach any sort of injunction that goes beyond preserving the status quo. That's particularly important here because of how this went down. I mean, we were arguing before Judge Oflew about the scope of the injunction, and as we say in our brief, Judge Oflew said, I'm gonna cut you off there. We're not going there today. Instead, I'm just gonna issue an order preserving the status quo, and I'm gonna order the parties to mediation. In that context, the status quo would be probably Mr. Limburg can't dissipate assets, can't encumber assets. It wouldn't be Mr. Limburg can't take more than $5,000 from each entity. Mr. Limburg can't pay his attorneys. Those are surprises. And those surprises were not things that Judge Oflu mentioned or that any party mentioned in any motion or brief. Those popped up in Ulico's proposed order. We objected to it. And without ever having our day in court, ever, no briefs, no hearing, the judge just signed Ulico's order. So many of the most pernicious things in the injunction were never even heard, never even requested. So the injunction reaches far beyond the power of the, uh, not only the power of the trial court, but also just as a matter of due process and fairness. Those should not be in the injunction. There's also case law in North Carolina, and I admit it's not clear, uh, to what extent for an injunction like this does the movement have to show the classic injunction standard, right? Irreparable harm, likelihood of success on the merits. Um, it's not clear. There's, there's no case that says exactly, again, to Judge Hampson's first question, what exactly is this injunction? There's no case that explains what that is. But, uh, I think the better reading is that, indeed, that standard does have to be shown. I mean, when you look at cases, and we cite them in the brief, you know, TROs typically use that standard, preliminary injunctions use that standard, permanent injunctions use that standard, stays pending appeal use that standard. The courts use that standard for injunctions. That's the bottom line. And Ulico didn't even try and show it. Well, but they have the, the judgment. Isn't that a pretty good showing of uh, likelihood of success on the merits? It depends what merits means in this sense. Um, and even if that's true, what about irreparable harm? I mean, there's no showing of irreparable harm if Mr. Lindbergh's able to pay his attorneys. And that's not a showing 
Ulico could try and make that showing, but they didn't. They never tried to make that showing. I want to turn to the, the charging order. The charging order is um, it's a creature of statute. The LLC Act in North Carolina and in some other states provide this as a remedy. And it provides it as an exclusive remedy. This is all you get with respect to an LLC. So when it's time to execute and you're looking at personal property and real property, each kind of property has its own rules. And the property interest that is a person's economic interest in an LLC, namely the membership interest, that is something that, of course, can be executed on. And we don't dispute that. But it has to be an actual economic interest. And as the statute, the LLC Act says, that leads to distributions, right? The only remedy is you tell the LLC in an order, a charging order, you, if you are about to issue a distribution to your members, and that member includes the debtor, don't do it. Send that money to the creditor instead. That makes sense. What Ulico convinced the trial court to do is to just list every LLC under the sun that anybody mentioned and to say, all of those LLCs get a charging order. Many of those, it's, the evidence is undisputed that many of them Mr. Limburg doesn't own. Uh, many of them are outside of North Carolina. Many of them he has some indirect interest in. And to put a fine point on it, you know, a lot of these roll up through a corporation. So let's just follow what would happen. I mean, how could an LLC make a distribution up a chain of LLCs? Yes. But then when it hits a corporation, corporations don't make distributions. So the fact that Mr. Lindbergh owns Global Growth, a corporation in Delaware, that means nothing in terms of the kinds of distributions that subsidiary LLCs could ever make to the stockholder of a corporation. Distributions is, isn't the is right Is the uh, corporation a member or a manager of any of the LLCs? To the top level, yes. They are. The corporation is the is a member of that. So, first if there was a distribution from any of the LLCs that are listed, that would necessarily flow through the corporation. It would to the corporation, but not through. It couldn't go past the corporation. Corporations don't make distributions. Well, they they, they pay dividends. They could. Or they have retained earnings, but the the fact that are you saying that the judge could not prevent the LLC? from making a payment to the corporation under the charging order? The judge could not do that because none of the parties that, in your hypothetical, none of those parties are Mr. Lindbergh. The judge can't, simply can't reach out and say, a non-party LLC can't give a non-party corporation a, a distribution. There's no jurisdiction to do that. Everything has to so, link back to so the debtor. Your, your, your complaint then is that um, these LLCs are listed. Um, the coverage to prevent them from making a distribution to the to the corporation, they can only be prohibited as to your client individually. Is that is that what you're trying to say? Yes, and I'm sorry if I'm being inarticulate. That's what the LLC Act says. So whoever the members are of the LLC, if one of those members is the debtor, the charging order can tell the LLC do not distribute to the debtor. So Mr. L Mr. Lindbergh does not own, he's not a member manager of any of those LLCs? He is of 70, and, and apparently my math is bad, which is super embarrassing, but I believe it's 73 of the LLCs. Okay, uh, so as to those? As to those, if the court disagrees with us as to the accessibility of supplemental proceedings, um, and disagrees with us that there's a stay and says, yes, a charging order is appropriate, 
then yes, the, the A charging order, a very narrow statutory compliant charging order as to those 73 is appropriate. Not as to the others, and certainly not the kind of goodies that are in the charging order, where there's injunctive relief, there's a mandatory injunction on a couple of paragraphs that requires Mr. Lindbergh to make certain reporting requirements indefinitely. There's no statutory authority for that. Is there any disagreement about which of the 73 uh, your client is a member manager and which ones that his interest is only reflected through his interest in the corporation? I believe if you look at the affidavit of Justin Holbrook, um, which appears in the record starting at page 133, that's where the 73 LLCs are listed. And I don't want to put words in Ulico's mouth. I, I think that Ulico would agree that those are the 73 where there's a direct interest, but of course Mr. Browning can correct me. So the dispute if, is over if, the balance. If we, if, if we disagree, I guess what you're saying is the, the, the court's order would probably possibly be properly affirmed as to the pro prohibition of distributions on those 73 as it relates directly to your client. Yes, provided that paragraph in the charging order, paragraph two, three, four, five, and six were all stricken, all of which reach beyond the Charged exclusive the remedy in the LLC Act. The yes. LLC. Okay. And so if the court wants to affirm it as, as amended, as to those 73 with those paragraphs removed, we would not contest that. That's correct. Okay. What's the standard of review in your view? The standard review on both of these is de novo, and I know that the parties did discuss this. Would it shock and surprise you that your your opponent disagrees with you on that? Shockingly, usually my opponents disagree with me all the time, including on standard of review. But no, in, in this case, um, you know, injunction orders, a preliminary injunction is reviewed de novo, and I think we can kind of cut through the dispute because everybody would agree that whether it's abuse of discretion or de novo, that it is a per se abuse of discretion to interpret the law wrong, right? To apply the law wrong, to interpret a statute wrong, that is an abuse of discretion. So sometimes the courts go through that in two steps. They say, okay, it's abuse of discretion, but it's a legal issue, that's an abuse of discretion, therefore it's de novo. Um, or you can just say it's de novo. Those are essentially equivalent. And, and in fact, that's exactly what happens in the North Carolina Supreme Court case that ULICO submitted via its memorandum of additional authority. They point you to community success versus more. It says, and it, it's a great encapsulation of this point, permanent injunctions are reviewed for abuse of discretion. The very next sentence, an error of law is per se an abuse of discretion. So it's a little bit semantic, um, I think, in this case. Ultimately, it's hard for me to believe that Ulico would disagree that questions of the court's jurisdiction, subject matter jurisdiction, or questions of statutory interpretation aren't reviewed de novo. They always are. I know you're coming up on your rebuttal time, but just really quickly, in, in terms of the charging order and the additional terms you contend are, are, are excessive, um, wh why can't a trial court give its charging order actually some teeth by including provisions like that, some requ reporting requirements, that kind of stuff, to ensure that the, the charging order is actually effective and not just a piece of paper? What's the other remedy here? Well, the problem, Your Honor, is that what is a charging order? A charging order is something that's directed to non-parties by definition, right? The, the reason that it's a limited remedy in the statute is because we're talking about the rights of non-parties, and those non-parties are LLCs. I mean, picture a law firm that's an LLC. Just because one law partner is a debtor 
you wouldn't want a system or a statute where uh, a court can reach in and do all kinds of mayhem with that LLC. I mean, the, the charging order as allowed under the LLC statute is exclusive and limited for that reason. Now, uh, we wouldn't want, uh, and the statute doesn't permit the court to tell the LLC to do anything. So for example, this one of the provisions says to the LLC that they need to freeze, this is the one we, we discussed earlier, uh, that the LLC shall each freeze all membership interests, economic interests, or payment of any sums to Lindbergh, pending further order of this court. That is an order to a non-party telling it to do something that is an affirmative act that we're not even sure what it means. That can't be allowed, right? I mean, that non-party would have to have some sort of right to come forward and contest it and would say, of course, the LLC Act doesn't cover this. So to the extent, Judge Champson, that you're, you're looking for kind of a hook for the ability to keep a judgment debtor in line, by all means, when execution is done, when you get into supplemental proceedings, 1-358 provides some level of injunctive authority for a judge to enter an order there. That's separate from a charge. You think it's premature at this point? And I'll reserve the balance of my time for both. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Browning, here from the uh, appellee. Good afternoon. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Um, Chris Browning for the plaintiff appellee, Universal Life Insurance Company, Ulica. With me at council table is one of my colleagues, Michael Cohen, with my firm. There's been a number of supplemental filings since the records and briefs were done, well, as recently as this week. Yes, Your Honor. And um, I think they primarily speak for themselves. And can we first visit the jurisdictional question. You made a motion to dismiss upon uh, a jurisdictional failure to a sort of substantial right. That's the first argument you have? Yes, Your Honor. I will be glad to address that first rather than responding to some of the questions that you asked that I think need more complete answers, but I will certainly get back to that. Well, I think it's threshold. I think the court would agree that our jurisdiction here is threshold. Yes, before we address anything else. Well, and uh, from our perspective, this is an appeal that should be dismissed and the cert petition should be denied. That as this court has repeatedly said, as well as our Supreme Court, that unless it meets the statutory requirements um, for an appeal as of right, there is no jurisdiction of the appellate courts. And as Judge Tyson, as you had zeroed in on, that uh, first, we're not talking about a final judgment here. The only argument that they really have is this is somehow a substantial right that allows them to bring this appeal. But think about it. They're, they have our money. We have a judgment that allows us to enforce the ability to uh, get our money, to is have any, this judgment. Is there any dispute, Mr. Browning, that that judgment is final? Or uh, is that judgment on appeal? Your Honor, it is final for purposes of the Uniform Enforcement of Foreign Judgment Acts. Uh, as set out in our motion that's in the uh, record in this case, we set out the case authority as to why that's a final judgment for purposes of this proceeding. Moreover, uh, the, uh, Mr. Lindbergh appealed from Judge Oakloo's 
recognition of that judgment as a judgment of this state. That appeal has been abandoned. So yes, it is a final judgment for purposes of this court's proceeding. It is on appeal, but their remedy, if they want some sort of stay, is to post the bond in accordance with the federal rules. And they have failed to, to do that. Instead, we have had a judgment since May that, 7th. That's the subject of your um, judicial notice, your, dish, your supplemental filing on that. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. That, that clarifies for the court. Mr. Uh, Lindbergh, in his brief, said he will inform the court in the event that there is any uh, developments with regard to the stay motion in federal court. There have been significant developments, um, and we felt compelled to make the court aware of that, which is our motion to take judicial notice, that the magistrate judge has concluded that Greg Lindbergh has dissipated his assets. She has concluded that there is no automatic stay, and that if he wants to stay in federal court, he needs to post a bond of hundreds of millions of dollars in light of our judgment of $524 million, which for purposes of this court is a final judgment that has to be recognized, and there is no stay that is uh, applicable or that would preclude this court um, from allowing execution to proceed. So is it is it your position that there is simply no remedy for a judgment debtor uh, in in this situation in state court? I mean, I, mean, I, I appreciate the arguments related to the remedies in, in federal court, but here, um, as your colleague points out, we we have statutes that are designed for that lay out the process for collecting and executing on, on judgments for supplemental proceedings that, you know, honestly protect both debtor and creditor in, in these situations. And so are you saying that if a, if a North Carolina state court sort of ignores the law on that and just enters an order enforcing a federal judgment, there is, there is no remedy of appeal? There's no right of appeal at all? Your Honor, by our reading of the statute, there is no direct appeal as of right. That would leave Mr. Lindbergh with the option of a writ of mandamus or a cert petition. Now, even if you accept his reading of the statute that it doesn't matter that he can appeal from uh, where the statute says you can appeal from an interlocutory order if there is a substantial right, that still applies to him. But even if you take that analysis, I would contend that there is no substantial right here, that um, the, we have a judgment. It doesn't impact his ability to go out and earn a living, to be in a job, to be pursuing a craft or a trade. He is saying he can't earn a living because instead of paying our judgment, he wants to spend it on other things. That does not fall within that exception of precluding someone from earning a living. It is not putting him, it's not precluding him from getting a job. It's precluding him from using money that was taken from a trust account and should be paid to Ulico, 
but instead he wants to spend it on himself without posting any bond and drag this out as long as possible. And Let me part ask of our this. A lot of times when a creditor reduces a claim to judgment, um, there are exemptions. There's filing for exemptions yes. that the debtor can set aside, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And um, they had to be returned, and those had to be of record, or the time to have responded that request must have expired. You agree with that? And that was done in this case, yes, Your Honor. In state court? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, so the, all the statutory exemptions or constitutional exemptions, they've been identified and set aside. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor, that um, Mr. Lindbergh is, um, had changed his residence to uh, the first, the state of um, Nevada when we instituted these proceedings. Now we understand he contends he's a resident of Florida, but as a out of, even though he applied for an exemption, that because he was not a resident of the state of North Carolina, he was not entitled to an exemption. But in returning that exemption form, even though he was required to disclose his property, he didn't. And that's part of the reason we're in this problem. There is zero transparency with regard to these LLCs, with regard to any of his assets, even where he might be living at any given time. Well, we all would wish that a debtor would make it easy, correct? And he has, he has fought us since May 2 of 2022 when we had our judgment in place. He has held out us at bay, and that's part of the reason the significance of appellate jurisdiction. He has a right of appeal. The charging orders, uh, he can't contest that he has ignored or violated certain provisions of the injunction and the charging order. We just need to get back to Judge Ofalu so that a contempt proceeding can go forward. And there's no question that when contempt is issued, he has the ability to appeal both the contempt sanctions as well as the underlying order. But of course, it's to his benefit to split this up into two appeals, trying to make it last a year longer as a result, further holding his creditors at bay. The, these, the General Assembly's determination to preclude uh, fragmentary and successive appeals are at its apex with respect to post-judgment collection proceedings because there the judgment debtor has every incentive to delay things as long as possible through appeals that shouldn't be brought that are premature. So now, it almost sounds like you're, I mean, I'm kind of hearing you and sort of analogizing it to, uh, to discovery violations where it's sort of the two-step process, right? You don't necessarily have a right to appeal from an order compelling discovery, but you have a right once sanctions are imposed for failing to comply right. with the motion to compel. Absolutely, Your Honor. You can appeal from the actual sanctions and the underlying discovery order. But, but isn't part of the issue here that between the injunction and the charging order, those sanctions are already kind of being put in place by the, by the, the freezing of the assets and the compulsion of the LLCs to, to pay the dividends, or the distributions, excuse me. And that's the nature of post-judgment collection proceedings and the General Assembly's uh, 
limited decision as to what can be appealed as a right. And, as they can, I said, can, be, and can they be combined into one order as opposed to the order to pay and then when the, the, the failure to pay, then you could seek contempt at that point. Can you bypass that two-step to put it in one order? No, Your Honor. The contempt statute is very clear that you have to give a show cause um, order and then proceed with contempt. And of course, Mr. Lindbergh cut that off by filing his notice of appeal before we could get to step two. That's why we're dealing with a situation where this is a successive appeal. He has a right of appeal, but he simply doesn't want to uh, go that next step to pursue that. He'd rather split it up, and I understand it. If I were a judgment debtor, I'd want to buy as much time as I possibly could, but it's not consistent with the statutes. Now, Again, the judgment's entering the judgment rate of interest, correct? I'm sorry? The judgment's final, so it's, it's earning the judgment rate. Uh, yes, well, it's actually the, the federal rate of interest is uh, our working assumption. Not, not the 8% North Carolina Not the 8%, rate. I wish it were, Your Honor. And the federal rate is what, is it an indexed rate? Uh, yes. Um, I think here it's 2.6, something like that. So. Going back to the earlier question, there's, when you have an interlocutory appeal, there's two things. A substantial right will be lost absent immediate review. Correct, Your Honor. Um, and when you look at his argument to Mr. Lindbergh's argument, it's basically once this is done, it's done. I will have no future right to challenge. You want to, uh, you want to speak to well, that? Your Honor, since he's already ignored portions of the uh, injunction and the charging order, he will have that opportunity. It just will be in the form of uh, contempt. And um, so this is not a now or never situation. And moreover, he tries to say that these are the last step with regard to the uh, injunction and the charging order. They're clearly not. On the face, the injunction says that if Greg Lindbergh intends to transfer property in excess of $5,000 out of the ordinary course of business, he has to get court permission. It's, it says that about the LLC. You're, I've, I've heard your arguments, but it seems that the corporate structure, it, you have already pierced the corporate veil, and these things are the alter ego of Greg, Greg Lindbergh. The order talks about LLCs, not Lindbergh. The charging order is only applicable to an LLC as to the interest that Lindbergh I'm, may receive, right? I'm, I'm sorry, Judge Carpenter. I was speaking in terms of the injunction. It precludes Not him, the charging order. Not the charging order. I'm sorry for misspeaking. You but, may not have. I may have just mis <laughs> misheard but, what you but said. But that injunction intends that Mr. Lindbergh, if he wants to move property, he comes back to court to explain it. That is continuing jurisdiction in contemplation of additional orders. This is far from a final interlocutory uh, ruling by the court. Moreover, the, with regard to the injunction, it was two aspects. Keep him from transferring property and also um, subject his corporations to an execution sale. That second aspect of our motion 
hasn't been ruled on by the court. With regard to the charging order, there's a requirement that he provide copies of his operating agreements, which he has declined to do. He's required to provide accounting of all sums due from his LLCs um, and to provide updates every 60 days, which he has declined to do. Clearly, that does not contemplate that this is the last order, nor are these post-judgment execution proceedings come to a complete where they'd be But if he right. does all these things, it is the last order, right? No, Your Honor. He, it's only, it's just, only not the last order if he doesn't follow the order. It is. If he doesn't follow the order, then it's contempt. We go up that way. If he does follow the order and disclose the information that he's required, there's no financial harm to him. It's simply what you would expect. Do you want to allow? But still, that doesn't result in a new order. If he follows the original order, there will be no final, it is the final order, just like your uh, opposing counsel argued. Well, Your Honor, I, I, my point is that Judge Ofalu certainly didn't intend to this, this to be the final order. He envisioned having to monitor what was going on, uh, and this has not come to a conclusion that would make it ripe for appeal. And granting an appeal by way of cert, or if you view it as a direct appeal, is just going to result in successive appeals each time Judge Oflu issues an order in compliance with the statute. Do you view this as a preservation and sequestration order? I, I view it as an order that Judge Ofalu intends to preserve the status quo. Greg Lindbergh is someone that I have learned all too painfully. You have to be very clear as to what the status quo is, or he will be moving the guidepost, and what you think is a clear statement as to the status quo doesn't end up being a clear statement in his mind. So I, I want to get back to my original question. It kind of builds on that, and that's, you talk about this the status quo, that sounds injunctive. Um, you know, what is, what are these orders and, and what is the authority that, that drives them? You know, you see Rule 65, equitable authority, the LLC statute, supplemental proceedings. I mean, where, where yes. does this fall in, in the lens? Or yeah. is it sort yeah. of an amalgamation of all of that? The, the charging order is basically under uh, Chapter 57. But the, it also cites the supplemental proceedings statute. It, it does, it does. So there, there is overlap, and I agree that there is something <laughs> akin to injunctive relief in both of these two, two orders. Now, uh, I... Um, with respect to the charging order, I think it's important to emphasize that that is in Chapter 57D. The supplemental proceedings, of course, are in Chapter 1, Article 31. And his argument about not having uh, subject matter jurisdiction until the writ of execution is returned unsatisfied, it has no applicability to the uh, aspects of the charging order that are issued under 57D. Let me now, ask you this. What was the purpose in instructing the clerk not to allow the order to go out by the sheriff? Your Honor, the, we had 
there, first of all, it's undisputed that the writ of execution was issued before the hearing before Judge Oflude, and it was returned unsatisfied before uh, the court issued its written order. But why was that done? Your Honor, we had the ability to take Greg Lindbergh's testimony in the Middle District of North Carolina proceeding. He provided zero evidence about any property that he had. Um, what we did know is that he had real property in Durham County, real property in Orange County, and all of these LLCs and corporations that had been operating out of Durham County. So as a result, we proceeded in uh, Durham County to enforce this judgment, to be able to pursue, pursue those assets. Well, there are a number of states, that um, Florida being one of them, that you have to tell the sheriff what to go get. He's not going to go on a fishing expedition. And you've got to identify assets that are subject to execution, or he will not even go look. So you don't put the, the, the monkey on the sheriff's back. I mean, that's the judgment creditor's responsibility to determine what assets are there and, and what to direct the sheriff to go to levy on. Isn't that correct? Uh, I, I understand if that's the procedure in Florida, that makes a lot of sense. But here we had done all of the due diligence that we could. And we knew there were no assets that we had been able to get through, find out through Lindbergh's testimony. Well, what, what, would, what, what, uh, what would have been the fault, or why wouldn't you just allow the, the sheriff to process, normal process to have occurred there? Why did you seek to cut it short? Uh, Your Honor, the uh, sheriff, there is no reason for the sheriff to have waited 90 days to return the writ um, unsatisfied. Um, when we know that the sheriff cannot execute, proceed with selling his real property until there's been a um, concerted effort to find all personal property that could be executed on. We also know that the sheriff cannot show up at the doorstep of Global Growth Holdings, Inc. or any of Lindbergh's LLCs unless he has a charging order that comes from the Superior Court. And again, that charging order is a separate statute. We don't need the return of writ ex of execution. We acted, um, I would defend all of our actions as being extremely reasonable in light of the information we had. I just, I just in my experience, I just had never seen that done. To um, ask the clerk, sheriff, to return a writ? No, to, to, for the clerk, to, to ask the clerk of Superior Court to mark it as if it had been returned unsatisfied it was on the threshold. And I think it was the sheriff's office that returned it unsatisfied. It had gone to the sheriff to be executed. It was uh, issued by the clerk. Right. Several days later, it went to the sheriff. Later that day, um, the sheriff returned it unsatisfied at my request. At now, the request if we, of, of your client? Yes. Now, if we thought there were any property other than his LLCs, his corporations, and his real property, we would go after. Um, we would have let the sheriff 
do whatever they could, but we knew this would be a futile gesture. So like a certain. motor vehicle search, a vessel search, uh, We've already done an airplane that. search, whatever. You, you'd already done all those things. And that's, a, that's in the record attached to the affidavit of Alexia Dominguez. Um, we, we did everything that we could to, to locate out, To locate non-resident, non-real estate, real property assets. Yes, Your Honor. So, I mean, what, isn't there a danger here, though, potentially of, of sort of opening the door in other cases to, a, you know, a foreign judgment creditor simply, you know, registering a judgment in you know, a random county in North Carolina, irrespective of, of you know, whether they whether there's actually property in North Carolina, <clears throat> and then just instituting supplemental proceedings in a forum that's just super friendly to, to judgment debtors and just opening this whole panoply of post-execution remedies and charging orders and equitable injunctions in order just to freeze out well, the debtor. Your Honor, let me say a couple of things about that. First of all, we filed this case in Durham County Superior Court. They removed it, and the federal court um, they are, they do not have the experience, the expertise with the state statutes regarding execution. That's one of the reasons that we knew that we needed to start in Durham Superior Court, particularly with his companies and his real property being located there. Is there a risk that people will take advantage of it? I don't think so because the basis for Judge Overloo's order is personal jurisdiction. The entire dispute here, the focus is Durham County. The guarantee at issue provided that if any dispute would be brought in the courts of North Carolina. So I don't think it's unfair that when we have a $600 million judgment where somebody has siphoned off money from a trust account, we are asking for the help of the state superior court to proceed with a prompt execution. So um, let me, if I could, with my remaining time, just- let, let me pose one question before you move on. Going to the list and the charging order of the respective companies that are covered, and this goes back to my question on the identity of the companies where Mr. Lindbergh has is a member, is a personal member manager and has individualized interest. Um, is opposing counsel correct that there are entities listed here that he is not, does not have an individual interest in? No, Your Honor. I, I appreciate the opportunity to clarify the record because it is, um, let me just say that his position that there's no admissible evidence. The record is to the contrary. And the starting point is with Greg Lindbergh's own affidavit, where he admits that he's the direct owner of 73 limited liability companies. And, and I think counsel is stipulated to the 73. Yes, but he's referred to it as being in Justin Holbrook's affidavit. It's actually Lindbergh's own admission in the record page 161 to 162. Then uh, the affidavit of Alexia Dominguez establishes that Lindbergh also has a direct ownership interest in 107 additional LLCs. That's in the record at page 208 to 215. 
Now, when you go to the affidavit of its CEO, Justin Holbrook, this establishes that Lindbergh is an indirect owner of 410 additional LLCs. These are the ones listed in our charging order, and that's in the record at page 134 to 157. So the vast majority of the LLCs that we're talking about is fully supported by the record. Now, there are a handful of remaining ones. For example, he won't provide any concession with regard to dissolved LLCs, but well, if they, they- I guess, here's my point. The whole point of the recordation is that whether an LLC is active or not, or dissolved, or administratively dissolved, or who has owners in it, that's all a matter of public record. Do you agree with that? No, Your Honor, that um, the member of the LLC, you have to dig to get it. Um, you don't, you're not required to disclose the member, just the manager. Uh, okay, my memory was that the annual report that is filed has to disclose the identity of the members and the managers. I, I stand corrected if that's the case, but we had an attorney going through these records, everyone where he was a uh, member, we put in her affidavit, she put in her affidavit. That should be undisputed. Okay. There were several where he was a manager, and Lindbergh then comes back with his affidavit and admits that he was a member of that entity. So however it might work in the Secretary of State's office, don't count on it working with Greg Lindbergh. Now, that takes me to another point that I really feel is important to make, which is, well, and before I get there, let me just say that the, uh, the Radiance case, I think, is dispositive on 1-358. 1-358 doesn't contain the language of the vast majority of other uh, statutes in the Supplemental Proceeding Act. There is no reason to um, construe that statute as just limiting the ability to execute, uh, to pursue 1-358 when the execution has been returned unsatisfied. Now, Lindbergh um, should be, re our charging order can reach indirect L ownership of LLCs. The starting point is what can be charged and the statutes answer that, an economic interest. What is an economic interest? It's defined in the statute as the proprietary interest of the interest owner in capital of an LLC, including the right of distribution. Then. Is there a chain of ownership, chain of proprietary interest from Greg Lindbergh to these LLCs that are buried deeply within his holding company? Yes, and Lindbergh is 100% owner of his holding company, That's, um, and that gives rise to a proprietary interest. I would cite 55, 1, 40, 21, and then when you look at the proprietary interest, carrying over from there, it is clear that when a LLC is dissolved, the owner of that LLC has a proprietary interest, an economic interest in the property. 
That carries over from Greg Lindbergh to the very bottom, these indirect LLCs. For the reasons set out in our briefs, we ask that the appeal be dismissed, the cert petition be denied, or the judgment below be affirmed in its entirety. Thank you. As, here, as the business, here on rebuttal. Oh, thank you, Your Honor. As the business court recently noted in the Strum case, only members of an LLC have an interest that can be charged, not managers. And by all means, look at record page 208, which Mr. Browning cited. Many of the things, the entities listed there, Mr. Lindbergh's listed as a manager, not a member. Um, Mr. Browning and his, uh, or Ulico in their motion to dismiss at page nine and again today, makes kind of veiled references to um, a breach of an injunction or breaches of the order or failure to comply. But those reporting requirements are state. That's what 1-294 does while we're on appeal. So those requirements of reporting, those kick in only if and when this case is affirmed on appeal. The idea that there would, uh, you'd have to wait and be sanctioned before you would appeal, if that were the rule, then there would be cases everywhere where that had happened in the post-judgment context. There are none. Instead, what there are is every single case in our briefs and in Ulico's briefs that construes the execution statutes or the supplemental proceeding statutes. Every single one of them was an appeal from a post-judgment order like these. And sure, they didn't get into the appellate analysis in those, but make no mistake, Ulico's position is that does all of those cases, dozens of them, are wrong and that they were entered without jurisdiction. And finally, I want to touch on this delay question. Mr. Limburg doesn't want to delay. He's making zero dollars from his companies. He can't pay his own attorneys. There's no incentive to delay. There's an incentive to appeal right away. Um, his living is running global growth, and that is still what he does on a day-to-day -day basis. He has to, that is his living. And global growth runs and ultimately owns 100 operating companies around the world, real companies with real employees doing real business around the world. That's Mr. Lindbergh's job. He just can't get paid for it. And we'd ask that the orders be reversed. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you for good arguments on both sides. We, the case is submitted. Uh, Mr. Clark, will you please adjourn?